Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. What a week. I mean, I feel like I say that every week, but this week was was something else. And we're going to get to a lot of it on the show today, from what an impeachment trial in the Senate means to vulnerable Republicans to the Trump administration's embrace of Saudi Arabia. But we begin with the Democratic primary. Thursday night was the final debate of 2019. Seven candidates took to the stage in Los Angeles. This is our chance. This is our only chance to defeat Donald Trump. And we shouldn't try to do it with one hand tied behind our back. The mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Um, Think about who comes to that. My good friend Joe, and he is a good friend, he's received contributions from 44 billionaires. I came here to make a case for progress, and I have never even been to a wine cave. I've been to the Wind Cave in South Dakota, which I suggest you go to. Day one, executive order restore the legal status of 1.8 million young people in the DACA program. They are the future of America, and we should invest in them. Everybody will benefit from it, every single American. This president is not against immigration. He's against immigration by non-white people. I get worked up about this. It's because I believe it so much in my heart that we have to bring people with us and not shut them out. I know what you're thinking, America. How am I still on this stage with them? Our campaign is growing all the time because we are laser focused on solving the real problems that got Donald Trump elected in the first place. Only chance to defeat Donald Trump. I spoke with Maya King from Politico. She's a reporting fellow there and also Kevin Roblard, senior politics reporter at HuffPost. And I started off by asking what their takeaways from the debate were. One big thing that I noticed from the debate uh, was this argument for the moral argument against Donald Trump and the moral argument for impeachment. This is something that Joe Biden has opened his campaign on and predicated it on, really, this sort of battle for the soul of the nation. But I think on Thursday, in the wake of uh, the monumental vote on the Hill to impeach Donald Trump, we saw a number of the candidates actually lean further into that argument, saying that not only am I a good candidate and am I a good leader, but I understand how, how American families feel and I'm willing to not only battle and unite the country, uh, but put America back on on solid moral footing. Mm-hmm. Kevin, what about you? I think really the thing that we're going to remember from this debate is it was the everybody gang up on Pete Buttigieg debate. Mm-hmm. I think there were sort of two different sets of attacks on him. Uh, there was Elizabeth Warren's attack. But the one that I think actually might be a little bit more damaging in the long term was uh, Amy Klobuchar's attack on him, which sort of played into existing concerns voters already have about Buttigieg, that he isn't electable, that he doesn't have enough experience. She really focused Mm -hmm. on how, at least compared to the other candidates, relatively little sort of traditional presidential experience he has, and really how thin his electoral record is, um, considering he's really only ever won an election in a relatively small college town. Maya... Let's talk about Amy Klobuchar for a minute, because she's also gotten some good reviews for her performance, not just that exchange with Buttigieg, but in making a case for herself. 
What do you think this means for her going forward? There's been a lot of talk that maybe she can be one of those surprise breakout candidates. Well, I certainly think that she introduced herself to a new crop of voters outside of the Midwest. Those of us who have been following this for months might be familiar with a profile of Amy Klobuchar that came out several months ago Mm. that uh, described her as sort of an overbearing boss who eats salads with a comb. Mm. And that was the one thing that we could pin to Amy Klobuchar. But after last night, we got a little bit more from her. You know, a lot of voters might not have known that she's a former prosecutor and that she has that um, also under her belt as a senator when she will go to the impeachment trials there. She also has a number of pretty salient policy points. She's fancied herself as a moderate in the race with um, sort of common sense democratic policies there. I think that's something that a number of voters um, can find comfort in, in a way. Let's talk about that for a minute, Kevin, this idea about moderate versus liberal or ideological lanes. How much of this debate that's going on right now is really about ideology and how much of it is stylistic? In other words, who's willing to compromise versus who is willing to stick by their positions no matter what? To a certain extent, that is, in many ways, really the major difference between, you know, I would put Warren and Sanders at one end and really Biden in particular at the other end Mm -hmm. um, on that question with sort of Klobuchar and Buttigieg occupying different points in the middle. Warren in particular has been, she doesn't necessarily explicitly name Biden when she makes this, but she'll often say, you know, I'm not naive enough to believe that when I get elected, Republicans are going to start working with me. Mitch McConnell is literally right now campaigning on being, quote, the Grim Reaper to any Democratic president. That's what he's told his voters in Kentucky. That's what he's promising to do. That said, despite that reality, many Democratic voters want to hear what Joe Biden says. They want the idea that they're going to be able to work together with Republicans and to use you know, something that both Buttigieg and Biden talk about. They really do want to sort of try to unite the country. Let's talk about Joe Biden for a minute, Maya. This debate, to me at least, he was the strongest that I've seen him in this entire process. I'm curious if you saw the same thing. I mean, the first couple of debate performances for Biden were not very strong. His points did not come across very clear. On Thursday, we saw a different side of Biden. He was very clear, I thought. His points came across uh, as very salient. And so in this situation, Biden wins by not losing. You know, he if he can make his points clear enough and come across, you know, as as the strong front runner that voters know him to be, he wins the night. And that's what we saw on Thursday. Kevin, do you see that that he emerges from this debate as the front runner? Yeah. And I I think to a certain extent that's been the case for a while now. Um, You know, when Warren was sort of the ascendant candidate She was beginning to put together a coalition that might be able to challenge Biden's. But since he's been knocked down and Buttigieg has sort of risen, Buttigieg, because of his weakness with uh, black voters and with Latino voters, just hasn't been able to put together anything resembling the coalition that would be able to dethrone Biden. It was his best debate in quite a while. So I'd like to present one caveat um, Mm -hmm. to Mm. that, which is that you make a good point in that Biden has not really been challenged Mm -hmm. um, on the Mm -hmm. debate stage. I don't know if that's because moderators recognize that he is truly a gaffe machine and so they like to throw him softballs. But 
One example um, that I can point to is the question that he was presented on reparations. The answer that we got was on immigration. Mm -hmm. And so I was really taken aback by that because I thought to myself, here's a candidate who has, you know, over half a share of black support in some states and at least two thirds or um, I think maybe 50 or 40 percent of black support just nationally who you know, did not answer, for whatever reason, a pretty softball question about an issue that is of utmost importance to the base of his coalition. And so, you know, when we talk about the DNC's identity crisis in terms of lack of diversity, that would have been something I'd like to hear from the candidate who has the largest share of support from people of color. Well, let's talk about Bernie Sanders for a minute, because he's another candidate who coming into this debate was seeing something of an improvement in his polling numbers. Nationally, he's in second place. We're seeing some movement in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. What did he do on that debate stage? Did you all see anything to make you think that going into next year, he has a real opportunity to become a front runner or at least to win one of these early states? Bernie does not really stray from his core messaging. That's one thing we can say about him. We didn't get a lot of conversation on Medicare for All on Thursday. And so for that reason, uh, Sanders was able to sort of pivot on a number of topics back uh, to Medicare for All and just even to sort of healthcare justice. One question that he was presented on race, he was able to turn around and talk about you know racial injustice in the medical field. I think that displays a certain level of, of expertise. You know, he said himself, I wrote the damn bill. We didn't get that on Thursday for the first time, I think, this entire debate <laughs> series. But it's something that sticks, like it's messaging that works with the voters. I would actually say that Sanders had a really strong performance because he's able to not only speak to the issues, but then bring them back to him and his record, you know, having served for decades now as a lawmaker. Sanders, his messaging to try to win over voters that are currently with some other candidate has not been to moderate his stance or maybe try out a different type of messaging. It's to do the make the same message over and over again, the same issues over and over again. And I'm wondering if that is enough to expand his appeal. In other words, he seems to be waiting for people to come around to him. I mean, this is sort of the Bernie's greatest strength and his greatest flaw. He is an incredibly, incredibly consistent politician. Uh, that means he can't always adapt to the moment. He's shown a bit more flexibility during this presidential run than he did in 2016, but he still isn't, you know, a super adaptable guy. He likes to go out and to pitch the same policies, Medicare for all, uh, free college, uh, debt forgiveness, that he's been pitching for a very long time. Um, I will say that I do think there is one message that Sanders has started pushing more that I think could be viewed as an implicit attack on Biden, but I think to make it work, he might need to make that attack explicit. In the last month or so, Sanders has started talking a bit more about government corruption and money in politics. He's always talked about this a little bit, but it's been more of Elizabeth Warren's issue than his issue. And it seems that he is talking about it a bit more. And last night on the debate stage, he did make a point of noting, hey, Joe Biden, you have more billionaire donors than anyone else. If he starts hammering on that message a little bit more, it might be a way to sort of 
convince some of the voters that he and Biden are fighting over tend to be sort of the mythical white working class voters that we talk about all the time. And, you know, if he can convince some of those voters that Joe Biden is corrupt, that they can't trust Joe Biden because he's taking donations from these billionaires, that might be a way to woo some of them over. Um, But so far, he hasn't necessarily delivered that attack with, you know, with enough repetition or enough ferocity. Maya, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me and giving us your insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Great to be on. Maya King is a reporting fellow at Politico. Kevin Robillard is a senior politics reporter for HuffPost. I'm not worried. I'm not worried because it's always good. When you don't do anything wrong, you get impeached. That may be a record that will last forever. But you know what they have done? They've cheapened the impeachment process. So forgive the hackneyed phrase, but it was that split screen kind of week for President Trump. On Wednesday, the House voted to impeach him, something that's only happened two other times in history. And on Thursday, in a 385 to 41 vote, the House passed a new trade deal with Mexico and Canada, a top campaign promise of the president. So what does this all mean for the president's next steps in Washington and for re-election? For that, I checked in with Tulu Oluranipa, a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Well, one thing you have to talk about when you talk about the president and his campaign are that they have two different entities. You have the campaign, which is more professional, well-funded, well-staffed. And then you have the president, who is somewhat removed from the campaign, dips in and out and gets briefings here and there, but basically does what he wants. So for the president, he is dejected that he was impeached. That was the big news of the week. The House passed two articles of impeachment against him. It was a partisan vote. But at the end of the day, President Trump could not stop the House from impeaching him. He became the third president in history to have that asterisk on his presidency. And as long as the history books are written, they will say that President Trump was one of just a handful of U.S. presidents that were impeached. And I think that weighs heavily on the mind of of the president. You've seen him lashing out on Twitter, lashing out at rallies, really being unhinged in some ways and really going after his critics and going after his opponents. And uh, ways that are some, in some cases below the belt, but just showing that he's hurt by this process, that he did not want to be impeached. And now that it's happened, he is sort of trying to figure out how to deal with it emotionally. Now, for the campaign, they are raking in the dollars. They are seeing some of the political benefit from this impeachment. The fact that the president's small dollar donors and the big dollar donors are sort of rising to his defense. They said they've raised millions of dollars during the process of this impeachment, and they are sort of at least happy with the fact that it's engaging their voters, it's motivating their voters, it's getting them uh, some data and some volunteers and some positive metrics that they can use to leverage in the 2020 race. Now, we'll have to wait and see as to whether or not the Democrats are also energized and motivated by this and whether or not they're so motivated by the prospect of ousting Trump that whatever is happening with the Trump base is not enough to overcome the Democratic energy. We'll have to wait and see on that. He did have pretty good legislative victory as well this week, passing a trade deal with Mexico and Canada. This is something that he talked about a lot as a candidate, right? How terrible NAFTA was. We're going to rip it up and bring uh, much better deals to America. He's able to check that off of his list. Polling that came out this week, One of them from CNBC shows that his approval rating on the economy is now plus nine. So almost 50 percent of Americans approve of the job that he's doing on the economy. And yet 
he is not talking about either one of those things today, is he? And so, so is the campaign just letting him do what he wants to do, even though the economy or keeping his promises were center to the campaign, he might have more success? It's interesting to watch which messages the campaign echoes from the president. When the president's going off on tangents, attacking Democrats and, you know, talking about deceased members of Congress and whether or not they're looking up or looking down, the campaign doesn't really echo those messages. They are focused on trying to put the president's economic message, talking about his legislative victories, get those out to the American people and to the president's voters. So whether they're on Facebook or whether they're putting money in digital ads, the campaign is much more streamlined in trying to target specific voters with a specific message that is more beneficial to the president. Look at your 401ks, look at your pocketbook, look at the fact that the unemployment rate is at a historic low. They're putting out those messages in various media and various platforms to try to amplify the president's economic case, even if he is not focusing on that as much as he otherwise would. Now, his supporters, his speechwriters do put lines about the economy in his campaign rally speeches. He does go through some of those things. One of the big campaign mottos is promises made, promises kept. So on things like the NAFTA deal and and changing trade deals, he's going to spend some time on the campaign trail talking about You know, we were able to fulfill my promise of ripping up NAFTA and getting the USMCA new trade deal through. But he's going to spend much more time and he's going to be much more animated, Mm -hmm. as we've seen, when he's talking about these divisive issues, these issues that are more raw and more sort of politically dangerous and politically politically toxic, um, going after Democrats, going after the leaders of the impeachment process. That's what he's more animated by, and the campaign has realized that they can't control that, but they can control the millions of dollars that they have, the millions of dollars they're spending on ads. And they're trying to push the message that even if you don't like the president personally, he's no Mr. Nice Guy, but he's getting the job done. He's helping you with your pocketbook issues as a family. He's helping build the economy, and that's the strategy. The thing I noticed as well this week, again, the president obviously impeached in the House, and yet polls that came out from a number of outlets showing the president's approval rating on the higher end of his trading range. What is the campaign and the White House think about this? Are they seeing the same thing? Yeah, you've heard the president say my poll numbers have gone through the roof. I don't know that that's true, but yeah, they I are pointing the to these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are pointing to these polls that do show that Democrats have not been able to dent the president's poll numbers through the impeachment process even as all this damaging information has come out. I think it shows that the electorate is pretty well hardened at this point in terms of the people that like the president, the people who don't like the president. We've seen him as you said in this trading range bouncing back and forth but not really breaking out of that range, low 40s, high 30s in some cases. And I think it shows that this isn't going to be an election about motivating the bases, motivating people to turn out the people that are already hardened about the president, not so much persuasion. The president and his campaign are trying to do some persuasion on the edges, but they're really focusing on trying to get out the Trump base, the people who stayed home in 2018, who still like the president, who are part of those poll numbers that show some favorability among his base, trying to make sure those people turn out. Now, the Democrats are going to say that we are going to turn out this much larger base of people who stayed home in 2016, minorities, young people who maybe weren't inspired, maybe didn't think Trump could win. 
So I think both sides are seeing these poll numbers and saying there's not going to be a lot of persuasion happening in the next 10 months, but there is going to be a lot of motivating and trying to energize the base. And Democrats say impeachment energizes their base. Republicans say impeachment energizes their base for a different reason. And I think that's what the campaign is focusing on going forward, is trying to make sure that they are targeting every potential Trump voter that's out mm-hmm. there, using the data that they have, using the digital ads that they that they are putting together, and making sure that they can turn those people out. And it'll be the job of the Democrats to try to turn out their base, because they weren't able to do it in the same way in 2016 that they had done in 2012. And if they're not able to do it in 2020, then all odds are in President Trump's favor as an incumbent with a strong economy to get reelected. Tulu Olorunipa, thank you for coming in and talking with me today. Really appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. Tulu Olorunipa is White House reporter for The Washington Post. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. year, an impeachment trial is expected to start in the Senate. And already there are a handful of vulnerable Republican senators who find themselves under a microscope. Cory Gardner, the senator from Colorado, is one of them. Gardner was elected in 2014. Cory Gardner pitched himself as kind of being this moderate guy who was going to be able to bridge sides and, and buck his party and you know really represent the state well in the Senate. That's Jesse Paul. He's the Colorado politics reporter for the Colorado Sun. Gardner's seat is a top target for Democrats in 2020. And I asked Jesse how Senator Gardner has positioned himself vis-a-vis the president and his voting record since President Trump has been sworn into office. He has voted with the president overwhelmingly, kind of in the same vein as a lot of Republicans in the Senate. Um, but he's also been, um, you know, while willing to criticize Trump on different, you know, headline of the day controversies, um, he hasn't ever permanently split from the president. And he's faced a lot of um, pushback from Democrats uh, in the state for that. And certainly, you know, this is like a a recurring theme. It's almost a pattern here. Trump does something that uh, makes the front page, say, of the New York Times. Cory Gardner responds, maybe isn't the first person to respond, rebukes the president, but isn't willing to go far enough to say, um, you know, I'm going to split forever from this guy. Tell us a little bit about how Coloradans are processing impeachment. And as you're talking to voters, whether this is something that they're even thinking about all that much. I mean, I think people are really thinking about President Trump. I don't know how much they're thinking about impeachment, but some polling recently here showed uh, that there's a really partisan divide when it comes to impeachment. 90% of Republicans uh, were against the impeachment inquiry back in October when it was last polled here. Um, and that's compared with, uh, you know, I think the exact opposite on Democrats. They overwhelmingly support it. And probably the most troubling thing for somebody like Cory Gardner is where unaffiliated stand on impeachment. I think it's around 60 percent supported the inquiry. And Cory Gardner hasn't really come out and said much about the inquiry, except for that he, you know, 
thinks that so far it's been a partisan circus, that, you know, this needs to be bipartisan, that things need to be fair, and that we will get to the bottom of this, but we'll do it in the right way. Has he talked much about his role in the next phase of this as we get to the Senate, his role as a juror in this? He stressed that the Senate needs to do this in the right way, but he hasn't talked too much about his opinions on the underlying situation, um, you know, President Trump's conversation with Ukraine with Ukraine's president. Um, and that has been really notable. Journalists here have tried to push him on that and say, do you think it's acceptable for the president to ask a foreign leader to interfere with our elections? And he kind of rejects the premise of the question. There was this really viral moment where a gaggle um, you know, kept pressing him on it and he refused to answer and said, you know, it's it's too partisan. It's going to be played out in the Senate. We'll get to the bottom of this, but this isn't, you know, the right time. I'm not going to answer this question. And since then, you know, we really haven't heard much of him um, in any way uh, on anything. So he's he's not been super public and out um, in answering these questions that we're really trying to pin him down on. You also noted in your piece that he's between a rock and a hard place, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. As you point out, to win over these independent voters, you would think that voting for impeachment could help him since they're more supportive of impeachment. They lean more democratic. But his base, 90 percent of whom say they like the president and they don't want him to be impeached, are going to be furious. And that's kind of the the biggest conundrum here for Cory Gardner. Um, you know, people look at this race and say, well, Democrat, you know, Colorado's leading blue. Um, Democrats and unaffiliated in the state don't like Trump. So how could Cory Gardner stick with the president and all of these things? And it really boils down to the math. Cory Gardner can't win Colorado without Democrats and unaffiliated voters, but he absolutely cannot win Colorado without Republicans. And Republicans here are fiercely loyal to the president. And they've signaled that if Cory Gardner were to split from Trump on something like impeachment or to permanently divorce from him, that there could be some serious consequences, whether that's, you know, not showing up on Election Day or a primary challenge that gets launched from the state assembly floor. It's a really tenuous path for him. So, again, you know, this is where he has to kind of find uh, some kind of middle ground. If he's going to win, he has to keep those Republicans who are loyal to Trump happy, but he also has to find a way to attract unaffiliated Democratic voters who really do not like the president in Colorado. Many folks may know of the Democrat who'd like to challenge Cory Gardner. It's John Hickenlooper, the former governor and short-time presidential candidate. But he also is in a primary as well. What can you tell us about what's going on on the Democratic side in that race? So our former governor, Hickenlooper, is running against a slate of eight or nine candidates. It kind of keeps growing and, and shrinking every single day. Probably his most, um, his largest opponent is the former Speaker of the State House, uh, Andrew Romanoff, who's running a kind of a progressive insurgent campaign, attacking Hickenlooper for his ties to the oil and gas industry, attacking the DSCC, the Democratic um, Senate campaign arm, for backing him early, um, and saying, you know, Hickenlooper is is not hard enough or not going far enough on climate change, not. Um, going far enough to protect us on um, issues that matter to Coloradans. Um, and so far, you know, the polling shows that Hickenlooper appears to have a pretty large edge over Andrew Romanoff. Um, but again, you know, this is a this is a race that we'll see a lot of money in um, and things are kind of heating up here. Andrew Romanoff released a really provocative new campaign video um, looking at what Colorado might be in decades given the impacts of climate change. 
um, and attacking Hickenlooper and Gardner and basically saying, this is our last chance. You have to vote me into office or else, you know, we're really going to be in, in, in deep trouble going forward. That to me seems like the most, I don't know if irony is the right word, but the fact that you have John Hickenlooper, if he is indeed the Democratic nominee, who really cast himself especially in the Democratic primary for president, as this pragmatic problem solver, right? I'm I'm somebody who can work with both sides. I'm like Colorado. I'm independent. You can't sort of tie me to uh, the partisan politics versus Cory Gardner, who also is saying the same thing about himself, who ran as that candidate in 2014. And now both of them are going to have to hug really closely to partisans, aren't they? Running as an independent becomes harder and harder. Certainly. And I mean, I think that's kind of the interesting thing that polling shows here, right? Um, One pollster put it to me really well that Democrats and Republicans in this this race are really going to cancel each other out. They're going to vote. Democrats are going to vote for Hickenlooper. Republicans are going to vote for Gardner, assuming there's not some kind of um, last minute crazy shakeup here. And what it's really going to be fought over are these unaffiliated voters who are incredibly unpredictable. We don't really know who they like and what they're thinking. We think that they lean Democratic, but they're definitely up for grabs. And, you know, if you talk to Cory Gardner's people, they'll say there's a good pool of them out in rural parts of Colorado that are leaning Republican and prepared to vote for Cory. Um, And then if you talk to Hickenlooper's people, if you look at statistics, we know that the front range of Colorado, which is where the population is based, those folks tend to lean Democratic. Um, so this piece of the pie is really where it's going to be the most fought over, where you're going to see people getting targeted. Andrew Romanoff is, is targeting those unaffiliated voters himself, uh, releasing his video and sending out text messages to unaffiliated voters across the state trying to say, hey, don't vote for John Hickenlooper, vote for me. Um, I'm the one who's going to save you from climate change. So that's that's going to be the, the biggest dynamic here uh, go heading into next year. Do you think at the end of the day, though, even for unaffiliated voters – that this race is really a referendum on Donald Trump more than it is on the two candidates running for the Senate? I think that's the $60 million question in this race. Um, who Who is going to uh, prevail? Is, is Cory Gardner going to be able to overcome uh, the issue of being tied to Trump maybe too much in this state? Or is John Hickenlooper going to be able to paint and the Democrats going to be able to paint Cory Gardner as being the same as Donald Trump, which... If you looked at what the election results here were in 2018, um, it's very clear that that's not a winning a winning campaign for, for Republicans in Colorado. Jesse Paul, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about Colorado. Thanks so much for having us. Since he was elected, President Trump has publicly embraced the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And to some extent, it's no surprise Saudi Arabia is a longtime U.S. ally. But many have been frustrated by what they see as President Trump's unwillingness to punish the country and its leaders for their egregious policies and behaviors. The best known of these is the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Although the U.S. government has sanctioned 17 Saudis for their role in his murder, the president has been criticized for not doing more to hold Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to account. All this is taking place against the backdrop of a Saudi-led bombing campaign in Yemen, that has killed thousands of civilians and left more than 12 million at risk for starvation. Still, the U.S. continues to sell billions in weapons to the Saudis. The president vetoed a bipartisan effort on the Hill to stop those sales. This week, the Senate passed the National Defense Authorization Act, 
but not before a provision that would have prevented the sale of some weapons to the Saudis was removed. Joining me to discuss the current nature of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. I was very disappointed that that provision was stripped out. We have the majority of senators and members of Congress in favor of pulling the United States out of the war. It's been a total national security disaster for the United States. It's killed tens of thousands of civilians. Over 100,000 kids have died of starvation and disease and al-Qaeda and ISIS have gotten stronger over the course of the war inside Yemen. Um, Ultimately, these defense bills are a compromise. You have to get the president's signature uh, and you have to get Republican support in the Senate. Uh, And uh, apparently the negotiators uh, made the call that they couldn't get the president's signature if they kept this provision in the bill. But that doesn't mean that we won't uh, stop fighting. We've had some success. We have pressured the administration to stop some of their support for the Saudi-led coalition, in particular the refueling that we do for planes that are bombing Yemen. And we actually have some progress on the ground. We have a a near ceasefire and we have the rumblings of peace negotiations occurring between the Houthis, the Emiratis and the Saudis. And none of that, none of that would be possible if it wasn't for this relentless campaign of pressure that we've been Mm -hmm. mounting here in Congress. Um, It would have been very positive to have that language pulling the United States out of the Yemen war in the uh, National Defense Authorization Bill. But there are plenty of other mechanisms that we can continue to work on. So even though this wasn't included in the NDAA and the president vetoed another bipartisan legislation to stop military spending for Saudi Arabia, you still feel confident that Congress can do more? I feel confident that Congress can do more. I don't know that we, over the course of the next 12 months, will have enough votes to override a presidential veto. Listen, the president has this bizarre affection for the Saudi royal family. Um, It seems as if the Saudis are the majority partner, are the senior partner in this relationship, that the Trump administration seems to take orders from them. Uh, And so we just can't get the administration to put a signature on a bill that fundamentally reforms our relationship with Saudi Arabia, pulls us out of the Yemen war, um, and we can't get enough votes to override that presidential veto. That's why we couldn't get it in the defense authorization bill. But it doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we can do to try to put pressure around the edges. As I said, we've made some progress in the past. There are other things that we can do to try to curtail our military support for Saudi Arabia to require more focus on the human rights abuses of the regime there, and we'll stay at it. In 2020. Now, you know quite well that it's not just the Trump administration that has been supportive of Saudi Arabia and American military support for Saudi Arabia. Obviously, during the Obama administration, an Obama administration that wanted to get an Iran nuclear deal, these same issues were sort of swept under the rug and not dealt with. So, How confident are you that even if there's a new president in 2021, even if there's a Democratic president in 2021, you aren't still fighting an uphill battle on this? I think you're right that there has been a general bipartisan consensus in Washington for a long time that we need to back the Saudis' plays in the Middle East, regardless of 
all of the ways that Saudi Arabia behaves that are detrimental to U.S. national security interests. Uh, the first privileged resolution that I brought before the Senate to try uh, to restrict arms sales to Saudi Arabia was during the Obama administration. Uh, I actually, as a supporter of the president, uh, brought a resolution before the my colleagues to cancel an Obama administration arms sale to Saudi Arabia. So I've certainly been consistent that I think this is bad policy no matter who the president is. Um, but I do believe that there is um, a new growing consensus, at least in the Democratic Party, that we need to change our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And you see that in that many of the Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden, are talking about really changing the way that we deal with the Saudis and potentially uh, saying is enough is enough on arms sales until they make some different decisions on how they uh, treat political opponents and, and, and how they conduct themselves in the region. And so I do think you're seeing a pretty serious shift, at least on in one party. And I think that likely will be reflected in the policy of a new Democratic administration. It doesn't mean that you walk away from the relationship with Saudi Arabia. It just means that you be a little bit more selective in the kind of things that we work with them on. And you've written in an op-ed piece that when you came to Congress in that after that first race, that support for Saudi Arabia was broad and bipartisan. And now you're saying, you know, we have seen, you wrote, that you've seen more and more bipartisan support for questioning this relationship. How, how does that work with your Republican colleagues? The Saudis really have shown no interest in addressing the growing concerns that, you know, both Republicans and Democrats have expressed. I mean, what happened with Jamal Khashoggi is simply extraordinary. Not only did they kidnap, murder, and chop up a journalist who was living in the United States of America under our protection. But then they lied to our face about it for two weeks um, and thought they could get away with it. And it showed just this contempt, frankly, for both Democrats and Republicans, even more so for many Republicans that had stood up and defended the Saudis' conduct in the region year after year after year. And so you look at somebody like Lindsey Graham, who had probably been the best friend of the Saudis for decades, He's, you know, effectively turned on the royal family and he's willing to support very tough measures to sanction Saudi Arabia, cut off arms for Saudi Arabia, because he feels betrayed by a regime that just doesn't seem to be listening to anyone in the United States any longer. And uh, I think that their unwillingness to change, their unwillingness to accept any criticism is part of what has shifted the debate here. Senator Murphy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. The conversation I had with Senator Murphy helped me understand the current relationship between Washington and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But I wanted more context about how we got to this point in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So I sat down with Nader Hashimi, director of the Center of Middle East Studies at the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Both with this president and previous presidents, during moments of tension, the fundamental objective has been to keep the existing relationship in place. So in that sense, Donald Trump is not that different from previous presidents. I think there is a problem in the political commentary and analysis of this current moment in U.S.-Saudi relations to blame it all on Trump and to assume that if he wasn't the president, things would be different. I think that's factually and historically not sustainable. Let's talk about the executive when that executive was President Obama and the desire that the president had to get 
the Iran nuclear deal done really drove a lot of his policy towards Saudi Arabia. Is that a fair assessment there? It is. I think um, the attempt by the Obama administration to uh, reach a nuclear agreement with Iran deeply upset the Saudis. I think they felt that the United States was abandoning the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and they started to develop this really bizarre narrative where they started to sound like a jilted lover. They were thinking that you know Iran was the new American ally mm. in the Middle East. Far from the truth, but that's how the Saudis perceived it. And in order to keep the Saudis happy after the agreement was signed, the president at the time, President Obama, basically gave the Saudis a green light to do whatever they wanted in Yemen. Obama tried to sell them more arms, tried to sort of, you know, patch up the relationship. But that was a, a moment of, you know, friction, I would say, between the two countries. And then that really set the stage for the 2016 election, where the Saudis were very excited about the Trump presidency and, you know, rallied to his support. So describe Trump's relationship with the Saudis and where you think his relationship may differ from previous presidents. Well, I think this is the closest relationship we've seen between a U.S. president and the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia. And it exists on a number of levels. I mean, the attraction and the symmetry and the affection. It's, it's number one, it, it overlaps with, I think, what drives most of what President Trump does, his ego. The Saudis have really flattered Trump's ego. And we saw that on display in May of 2017 when when Donald Trump, you know, took his first foreign trip abroad mm -hmm. to Saudi Arabia, where they basically rolled out the red carpet and had a huge celebration. And Trump absolutely loved it. I think Trump also sees a close business connection. There's longstanding, you know, business interests between uh, the Trump organization and the Saudis. So that cements the relationship. But I think fundamentally, from a foreign policy and political perspective, the Trump administration sees Saudi Arabia and sees this new young crown prince as the anchor of American policy in the Middle East, principally with respect to Iran policy, but also with respect to the broader regional landscape and areas of concern that have to do with the purchase of weapons, that have to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict, and that have to do with consolidating an alliance of like-minded authoritarian regimes that the Trump administration has worked very closely with. So for all of those reasons, we're seeing this you know, new intimate connection between uh, the White House and the Saudis that we really haven't seen before. Now, given that... I think every Democrat who's running for president right now voted to cut off this aid to Saudi Arabia. If one of those Democrats is elected president, do we assume then that that's what we're going to see is a much more um, aggressive posture that the a Democratic president would say, we're cutting off aid. We're not giving you any more weapons. This relationship now is going to look a lot different. Uh, rhetorically, yes. I think the mm. Democratic candidates are saying these critical things of Saudi Arabia because that's where public opinion is. That's how you get the votes. Whether they'll actually do anything when they come to office is an open question. My own reading is that if it's Joe Biden, it'll basically mm. be, be you know the Obama administration policy, um, you know, 2.0. 
Uh, he was the vice president. I think he'll rhetorically be critical of the Saudis. I don't think there'll be any serious and significant break in relations. If it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, then I think there is a serious possibility that U.S.-Saudi relations will undergo structural changes and there will be a serious reevaluation of that relationship. What does the U.S. actually get out of this relationship with Saudi Arabia? I think there are constituencies that want this relationship to continue. Those that are um, involved in the manufacture of arms, those that have ties to various lobby groups, those who are, you know, stand to make a lot of money in terms of, you know, business relationships. So it's not just arms manufacturers, it's, you know, Silicon Valley, it's, you know, the entertainment industry. There's a lot of, you know, powerful people in the United States who want this relationship to continue. I think the average American um, is much more skeptical because they don't see the benefits. And in fact, I think if one were to make an objective analysis, Saudi Arabia is not the moderate sort of stable ally that is, um, you know, benefiting our interests in the Middle East in any way that can be, I think, justified or sustained. In fact, I think Saudi Arabia is responsible for a lot of the instability in the Middle East. Number one, let's not forget that Saudi Arabia is the theological and ideological home for ISIS, for radical extremism. That's still that's still in place. You know, they've spent 50, 60 years spreading this ideology around the world, and we're, we've seen the, the toxic effects of that. I'd love for you to weigh in on the impact of the recent shooting in Pensacola and and whether this you believe was just sort of a, a one-off incident or whether this raises or should raise serious concerns about the US's continued military support and the training that we give to Saudi nationals here in the United States? Well, I think it's an embarrassment on a number of levels. One, it highlights and it puts into public discussion the U.S.-Saudi relationship, particularly the training of pilots against the backdrop of what the United Nations has called the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet, the war in Yemen, where Saudi warplanes are responsible for a lot of that devastation. So one of the, I think, important consequences of this event in Pensacola, Florida, is that all of these questions now are going to be brought back into public discussion. And the related question, of course, is, you know, to what extent are these young men who were involved in this incident in Pensacola, Florida, a reflection of deeper discontent within Saudi Arabia? You know, is this just a one-off event? Or is this a reflection of a current of a opinion, at least a body of opinion within Saudi Arabia, that is much more widespread, thus undermining you know, the narrative of the Saudi crown prince that everything is fine, we're opening cinemas, women can drive, you know, we're moving forward. It revives, in other words, those memories of 9-11 and the relationship between Saudi Arabia. It brings all that back into discussion in ways that are very embarrassing, both for the U.S. government and the Saudi government. Well, Nader Hashimi, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me about this. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Nader Hashimi is the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. That's all for us today. The people who make this show are producers Patricia Jacob and Amber Hall. Our board operator and engineer is Debbie Daughtry. Sound designer and director Jay Cowett. Our digital editor is Dina Syedamid. And David Gable is our executive assistant. Special thanks to Lee Hill as well. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or want to listen back, 
check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.